I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on Wednesday, September 29th of 2021. I am your host, Anna Garcia, and our guest today is Joey Jackson, a criminal defense attorney who's based in New York. Joey is a regular contributor to CNN and HLN, and we got a chance to work this week together because of the Gabby Petito case. Joey, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Huh? You do fantastic work, and it's a pleasure to join you as it has been this past week. Oh, thank you, Joey. The pleasure really has been mine being on HLN. Here are the cases we're looking at this week. We have an update on a case that we've been following here on the podcast. This is the case of the missing mom of three, Maya Miliete. May Maya Miliete. She goes by Maya. Now, she vanished from the San Diego area back in January. Her husband was named a person of interest in the case. And now there are new court records pertaining to him that have just been released. But first, singer R. Kelly has been convicted in New York. The singer producer was on trial for federal racketeering and sex trafficking charges. After six weeks, more than 50 witnesses testifying, they found R. Kelly guilty guilty, but he is still facing charges in Illinois and Minnesota. Many of our regular followers know that Georgia attorney Gerald Griggs, who is a frequent guest on this show, represents one of the families of the victims. He's going to be joining us in just a few minutes. He's standing by and we have him for only a little bit. So, Joey, you know, this is a major victory because the allegations against R. Kelly go back to the 90s. Yeah, they it really is. I mean, you know, we're in a new era of accountability, Anna, and that new era obviously extends to people who behave badly. And to your point, I think that it's been over decades that they've been looking that his authorities to hold him accountable. And finally, they did. You know, I think the surviving R. Kelly documentary and you listen to the compelling witnesses and the victims 
Uh, and it really said it all. And I think it's what triggered the investigation. And what was interesting to me is what the prosecutors did really to go after him. Right. We look at, for example, the racketeering statute. Right. Well, what does that mean? It means when you run a criminal enterprise and what prosecutors did in federal court in Brooklyn here in New York is they said, look, we're going to apply it to a person who has a team of people and they use that team to go out and to recruit little girls and to recruit other people uh, so that you can use them for your own selfish sexual gratification. And so I found it interesting that although it was not this structured organization, it was a group of kind of his uh, uh, minions or however you want to term them, people associated with him, that he went out and said, hey, I like this one. I like the other one. I want you to bring them to me. And they really had a part in enabling him. And so the government used that statute, the racketeering statute, to suggest that he had this organizational structure that furthered a criminal enterprise, that criminal enterprise being his really self-sexual gratification of these young girls and, and boys. And so I think, you know, they had a lot to consider the jury did as it relates to the victims there. And then what the government also did was they used this man act on And what they did with the man act is they said, listen, if you transport someone over state lines and you do it for the purposes of exploiting them sexually and for immoral and illicit purposes, that's a crime, too. And so all in all, total of nine counts, one racketeering count eight other counts of the Mann Act, jury finding him guilty as to everything. And now, of course, he faces decades behind bars. Last point, and that's this. We know his troubles are not over. We know that he has also a federal prosecution pending in Chicago, a state prosecution pending in Chicago, and a state prosecution pending in Minnesota. And so although he's going to be held accountable here, I think when I say here, I'm in New York, when he's held accountable here, I think authorities with respect to these other jurisdictions are going to look for him to answer to those alleged crimes as well. So moving forward, he's in a world of hurt more so than he is even now. Well, Joey, let's bring in attorney Gerald Griggs. So, Gerald, I know that you've been working on this case for years and that you have been in New York. So from your perspective, do you feel you got some justice? We feel that there's been a substantial step toward justice. We're thankful for the Eastern District of New York prosecutors. We're thankful for Homeland Security and all of the federal agents that investigated this case. But more importantly, we're thankful to the jury for listening to the voices of the survivors and the families. Uh, so this is a first step. Uh, but as I was listening to Joey, my good friend, uh, talk about the additional cases. People need to understand there's a Northern District of Illinois case. Um, there are so many uh, intricate details of this case, and there are also three other cases. So we are thankful to the Eastern District of New York, the prosecutors, uh, Homeland Security uh, for investigating this case, of course, all the other federal agents. Uh, but the families and the victims are resolute that this is a first step towards justice, and we will continue to press uh, because it's been such a long time coming. Uh, so many investigations, so many outcries, over 25 years of predatory behavior. And we believe that the decision on Monday was a first step towards justice. So, Gerald, I'm curious about uh, something that I, I read and you can perhaps explain this and, and Joey, too. I, I want to ask you, Gerald and Joey, that, you know, R. Kelly and his team had a way of not only intimidating, but getting people to, you know, either accept hush money or to be threatened and forced into writing letters claiming that 
that in no way had R. Kelly ever violated them. Now, I find this interesting. In this case, those letters that he always kept stashed away were actually used against him when the victims testified, saying that they'd been coerced into writing these letters. Gerald, Joey, what do you make of this? Well, R. Kelly had a way of trying to protect himself. Uh, During the course of the previous trial in 2008, 2009, he realized that his predatory behavior almost got him convicted and sentenced to prison for such a long time. So there is an allegation that will be proven in the next case uh, that there was a system upon which to protect Mr. Kelly. And that's what you saw with these letters, this information. Sometimes he would video record individuals saying they stolen things from him, saying that they done things to him in an effort to protect him from prosecution. And that's one of the things that you know, many people did not know about. This was not publicized in the documentary. That's why I've always said the documentary was the tip of the iceberg. There actually have been three documentaries. And each time the victims and survivors were trying to detail the predatory behavior, the coercion, the threats, the intimidation. If you remember correctly, right before the the, um, premiere of the documentary, there was a bomb threat that was called in. That that individual has now been indicted and will be prosecuted for that. There were managers that were given threats to individuals. Those individuals have been indicted and will be prosecuted. And then there are unindicted co-conspirators. A lot of the conversation online is, what about this person? What about his enablers? This is an ongoing criminal prosecution. And trust me, the prosecution has ample evidence to prosecute all of the individuals involved. They wanted to proceed with Mr. Kelly first. They did have cooperating uh, co-defendants who testified in this trial and may testify in the other trials. So this is a process. And I think people need to see it uh, from this 30,000 foot view up, uh, up and then come down into the details for four and a half weeks. There was testimony, 46 witnesses, 11 victims, six of which were underage. We're talking boys and girls. There was documentary evidence. There was DNA evidence. There was audio evidence. There was video evidence. All of this came in. And then you had expert testimony to explain some of the behavior of some of the survivors. So this was a well put together uh, prosecution by the team at the Eastern District of New York and by Homeland Security and the FBI that resulted in a conviction. And I think Joey would agree with me. That was quite quick in a four and a half week trial. Nine hours of deliberation is quite quick. And so I think that we need to look at it from that lens uh, that Mr. Kelly had absolutely no defense. Two of his witnesses actually promoted and assisted the prosecution in making their case. And so, you know, I I just think that people need to understand his predatory behavior, the uh, pattern and practice of recruiting young women, uh, grooming young women, abusing young women, and then the bombshell that we've been holding for such a long time, young boys as well. Joey, I'm curious, how does it usually work when you have, you know, this this contradictory evidence, if you will? Obviously, the victims were very compelling. But do you think it actually worked against R. Kelly when the jury saw this this cache, if you will, of fake letters and videotapes professing that he had done nothing? And then now you have people on the stand saying, no, 
we were forced to do that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think uh, Gerald said an awful lot. Um, and I agree with, you know, the compelling statements that he made. But let me say this. At every trial, you're going to have different narratives, right? And those narratives you're going to have are they're going to be contradictory in all forms. You're going to have the prosecution that are going to indicate that he's a predator, that he exercised and exerted control, that he was essentially a person who used a bunch of people around him to enable himself, that he could exploit these girls and exploit these boys. And you're going to have the defense that says, listen, they're a bunch of groupies, they're fans, they're liars, right? And you can't trust anything that they say. It's a woman scorned, a girl scorned, et cetera. We know in retrospect what the jury concluded in resoundingly rejecting that defense. But what it comes back to, Lana, is this. It comes back to human nature. Yes, law is about the niceties and the, the legalities of certain things. But at the end of the day, as a person who stands up in court and defends people here in New York and state and federal court, I'm talking to jurors and I'm asking them to do what all lawyers do, which is to exercise your common sense and your good judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Who does that? In the event that you engage in a relationship, is it your practice when you have a person who's around you because they love you, they support you, they want to be with you? that they should write a letter on your behalf indicating that it's a consensual relationship? Is it your practice that they should put chapter and verse in a letter, what you do, what you don't do, what you allow, what you don't allow? It doesn't comport with human behavior. And so when you develop these letters, when you have all of this information out there, it begs the question of why would you do that? Would that be consistent with a person who engaged in innocent activity? Would that be consistent with a person who just did that because, you know, what? That's what everybody does. I just feel that I should have people around me and just write a letter telling everybody was consensual, telling everybody you enjoyed me, telling everybody we enjoyed each other and this was wonderful. Or is that more consistent with someone who's guilty, who's setting up a defense for the future who might need that? And when you have those letters which don't comport, Anna, with human judgment, comportment, what we really expect in everyday life, and then you have the victims who come and contradict that and said, hey, he forced me to write that. Who's a jury going to believe? And I think it's not only does a trial come down to who tells the most compelling narrative, but what narrative is A, reasonable, and B, what narrative makes sense? And so I think the jury said, we know what makes sense, and what makes sense to us is that, you know what? You're a predator. You had them do it. You forced them to do it. You did it to protect yourself, and it backfired on you. And I think that's how, ultimately, the letters really came to doom him, which he thought would really uh, exonerate him at the end of the day. It didn't do it. Gerald, does this give you momentum? Uh, can any of this information be used in the cases that are coming up, or, or this kind of information is not introduced to the jury? I'm sure it will be introduced in the other Northern uh, District, Northern District of New York, uh, of Illinois case, uh, simply because that case covers the breadth of 30, of 30 years and it's going to bring in the previous trial. So it's going to show the pattern and, and behavior of obstructing justice, as well as victimization of these victims and survivors, as well as the others. And I think what people need to remember is 11 victims testified, but there are more survivors. There's more information. There's a survivor from the 2008 case, which we fully believe will testify in the next case. And more of the video and audio and the documentary evidence. These are the things that the prosecution pointed to. And as, as uh, my good friend and co-counsel said, 
That's the focus. In a trial, as you said, it's about common sense and reason. It's reasonable and commonsensical that for 25 years, this individual has had enablers and people working on his behalf to procure young women, girls, and boys for the purpose of sexual gratification. It's in his music. And so I think that's what people need to focus on. And yes, that will come in in the, the next trials. And, and I think that another jury will be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of all of the allegations that have been made. And so, I, you know, I'm just thankful to these survivors. I can't lift them up enough. The vitriol they have faced for the last 25 years, uh, being called everything from groupies to liars to women scorned, it took a lot to get on the stand. The things that some of these women had to suffer, black women had to suffer in silence. The strength it took for them to come forward on the stand, be subject to cross-examination and not break. There was one survivor who, after watching the videotape, could not fly to New York to testify because she had an emotional breakdown. These feelings are real. And so um, I, I just want to get that across to your audience. This was not an easy case, not for the lawyers, not for the activists, not for anybody associated with this. And, you know, the thing that they want to get across is this. They told their truth, both in public and in a courtroom. And the jury heard them. The jury felt them. It was a very emotional trial. It was very draining. Even the reporters say, said that some of the evidence in this case made them cringe. Wow. Well, Gerald, thank you so much for coming on. We know that you've You've got yet another case that you've got to go work on. We appreciate this. We hope that you come back. Um, you've been a real champion for the families of the victims and the victims and a voice that needs to be heard as well. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Joey, for the wonderful work you're doing. And let's continue to hold these victims up. Um, like I said before, they've been through a lot. Um, many of them have broken down over this and they are receiving counseling. Um, but the main thing that they wanted was an opportunity to speak their truth in a courtroom. They've done that. They will continue to do that. And they're hopeful that the, com the greater community will go back and look at the transcripts for four and a half weeks and listen to the evidence. And hopefully the next trial will be broadcast so people can hear it from them. This was bigger than any documentary. This was bigger than any uh, try to get any money. Nobody's getting money out of this to say some of the things they had to say, especially the families. Um, so, you know, I, I'm just proud to have represented so many of them. Uh, and I want the public to understand that this was an endeavor uh, that took the work of, of African-American women 25 years to get to this point. So they're thankful to law enforcement. Well, Gerald, you do great work. Uh, you know, we need you on those front lines. And I know you'll continue to be on those front lines fighting for justice for everyone. And so your voice is an important one. I think it inspires other people to come forward. And uh, I know you'll continue to be successful, especially given the vigor and might that you show when you go about your business. So God bless you, my good man. Thank you, my brother. And thank you again, Anna, for having me. And I got to go back to fighting for justice. So I appreciate everybody. 
And uh, we'll see you at the next episode. Absolutely. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. On to our next case, and this is an update out of San Diego. We covered this case months ago on the podcast. May Maya Miliete is a mother of three. She was 39 when she went missing. Now, that was in January of this year. There have been several developments over the course of these nine months that Maya's been missing. She also had a birthday. She turned 40. And there is new official court statements that have been made by Maya's husband. And and Joey, this is really interesting. The documents and the statements that are coming out are from family court. They're not necessarily from the investigation into the disappearance of Maya. Yeah, there's, there's no question. I mean, you know, it's troubling in so many ways. I think you look at Maya's case and you look at the cases all over the country. And just if I could look at a general, then I'll be specific. You know, it's important for everyone to know that there's more than about 550,000 last year people went missing. The year before that, it was over 600,000 people that went missing. And this is a problem. Uh, It's a problem for so many reasons. And then you look at and you understand that these are just not numerical numbers. These are people with families. And in Maya's case, people with a, a young family, right? A young family, young children. And then you learn about other things that come out and you reference family court, Anna. And family court, you go to where there's some discord or other issues. And we know there's the family court battle with respect to the husband trying to keep the children away from her family. Uh, but you look at that and you understand the dynamic or helps you understand their dynamic. You see a person who initially, the husband that is, who was vested in finding out where she was, what she was doing, uh, you know, and what led to her disappearance, right? And then you see him back away from that. You look at a person who initially appeared to be engaged and involved with finding his wife, and then he seems to back away from that. You look at the issue of marital discord, and you look at the issue of her consulting a divorce lawyer, uh, or about to, right, on the verge of her disappearing, and that also gives you pause. You look at the fact that there's some indication of an affair or what have you, and that gives you pause. And you look at a person who left leaving all of her things behind, and that gives you pause. And so, you know, while we never know, and I hate to speculate as to, you know, who specifically was involved, who specifically did it, there are just so many signs and indications that just don't uh, quite seem right. And so, you know, as we continue to get more information, whether it be from family court, whether it be from other sources, it just seems that, uh, you know, there was this rocky uh, relationship, I gather, and it just makes you wonder and compels you to think of what, if any, responsibility the husband had. And a lot goes to uh, you say this all the time. It's about logic. And I agree with you. Crime in solving cases isn't always that difficult. Getting the evidence to support your theory is the really hard part. But usually, you know, it's pretty logical. We, We may not agree with the logic, but the reasons people do things, you're like, well, of course, or there was an impending divorce or she was cheating or he was. And I'm not saying that that's the case here, but I, I'm just saying that logic has a big part of it and how people act. And one of the things that bothered me from the very beginning when we covered this case is that when Maya went missing, the husband kept making these references that, oh, she had locked herself in 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 her bedroom, which I thought was very weird. You know, they have two daughters that are 11 and nine and then a four year old son. Right. So the family goes about their business and mom is supposedly just locked herself in uh, in a room for days. That is not normal behavior. 
right? And me being, you know, the obsessive mom, I said earlier on, when you have small children in the house, you don't have locks. You you know, you generally try not to have locks on the door because you're always afraid they're going to lock them. So there's just a lot about a story that didn't make sense. So um, I want to just describe a little bit about Maya. She, you know, did work as a civilian defense contractor at the Naval base in San Diego, which is important because the Naval investigators have also gotten involved along with state investigators and local investigators. She was last seen at about 5 p.m. on January 7th of this year. And that was a Thursday. This is the last place that we believe she was seen was in Chula Vista, which is where her family home is. Now, it was her sister that reported her missing on Saturday, two days later on January 9th. This is really important. So the family, Maya's family, very close knit, and they had a constant you know, chat going, a group chat always, constantly. And they were getting ready to go on a camping trip because one of Maya's kids was having a birthday. So the family was planning the celebration and she stops responding. We see this all the time, Joey. That is not normal behavior, right? to just simply stop communicating with your family. So one of the brothers goes to knock on the door to say, where the heck's my sister? And the husband, this is according to the brother, says, oh, she's been locked in that room. And so, you know, the brother did not find that that was a satisfactory answer at all. Um, So the brother knocks on the door and there is no answer. Okay. Family goes to the police and says something very weird is going on. And then the police show up. Now there's no one in this locked room anymore. And they start this investigation. Okay, so as you said, she doesn't have her cell phone. She doesn't have she hasn't used any credit cards. I mean, yes, sometimes people, Joey, do walk away from life, you know, and sometimes parents do do that. But that's really a minuscule amount, right? Yes. So well stated. Uh, Let me address this in three parts. One, to discuss the investigation. Two, uh, to talk about facts and why they matter. And three, of course, to talk about the law. You know, you mentioned at the outset of your remarks that you have these law enforcement entities. It's so important when you have a missing person or persons that you have law enforcement that engage each other cooperatively. You mentioned the naval investigators as well. Why is that important? Because it takes a village. When someone's out there, we live in a big world. And when you have law enforcement coordination, whether it's federal authorities coordinating with state authorities, coordinating with local authorities, coordinating with naval authorities, what you have is a broader net. You have leads that come in, those leads that are shared with all law enforcement officials so that they can take action and they could look under right every rock and every tree. And so I think invest, the investigation is so significant. That's the real, you know, the, the general view. Now you get to the specifics of the investigation in terms of what the husband knew and when he knew it, right? Now we get to the facts, starting about factually, and then I'll address the legal aspects. And so factually, as you mentioned, and you'll hear me mention all the time, you know, when you speak to jurors, if it gets that far, and I'll get that to that point when I talk about the law, right? when you get to that probable cause element, whenever you're laying out a case, you number one, want to lay out a story. And there are certain things that we do every day. Some things that we do, right, make sense and some things don't. But when the things don't make sense, it makes you question, it makes you wonder. You talked about, you know, oh yeah, she's in the room. Really? Is that something that makes sense? Is it, so you have to examine factually and and talking about the facts, let me say this, you know, 
Obviously, there's a distinction between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. What's the difference? Direct evidence would be someone that would come forward and say, I saw the husband do A, B, and C to his wife. I saw the husband, you know, engage in activity that would allow you to believe that he had something to do with her death. I saw them fighting. I saw him raising his hand to her. I saw A, I saw B. And yes, we live in a world where there's a lot of surveillance that could show that. But unfortunately, there are those circumstances where you don't have direct evidence. You don't have one, two, three, four, five people saying he did it. This is his height. This is his weight. This is what he was wearing. This is what he was doing. And that's why circumstantial evidence is so important for those out there listening, saying, OK, I understand what direct is saying, OK, you saw it. You saw the height, the weight. You saw everything. Well, what is he talking about when he says circumstantial evidence? If I came in here to have this conversation with you, Anna, and it was perfectly dry outside when I came in here, when I go out after we finish this and I see that there's, it's wet everywhere and cars have driblets of wetness on them, but there's nothing falling from the sky, I could reasonably conclude that the circumstances dictate that it was raining at some point. I may not have seen it, but we know it was raining. And so I think when you have a case like this where you don't have that direct evidence because she's missing and you and I are not talking about four different witnesses who have identified the husband as someone else, we have to piece this together by the circumstances. And so cases become about building blocks and how you can build a case. And the way you build that case is by pointing to what behaviors are sensible and what behaviors are not. What has, again, husband just being a person of interest, what has he done that makes sense? And what has he done that doesn't? What were the circumstances of the relationship? Who was she with, if anyone, in terms of an affair? How did that affect him? Were they looking to get a divorce? What was happening with the children? How did she leave and why would she leave her wallet and everything else and pocketbook and everything else behind and cell phone? But yet she's got these beautiful children to care for. Why would she be absent? And it, she went through a birthday. She's not to be seen. So circumstantially, we could know that something happened to her. And circumstantially, a lot does, in fact, point to the husband. Getting to the factual part, number three. You know, when you look at the facts and you look at the law, number three, rather, you look to see when is an arrest going to be made? Remember and understand that an arrest can only be made if there's probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that the person who you're looking to arrest committed it. And so what I think is happening is that the police know a lot more than you and I ever will, Anna, right? And we know that there's a lot of records and documents and it goes back to this police coordination. And I believe that at some point they will present all of this information, right, that they have a lot more again that we know. And it will build a story. It will build a narrative. Last point. And that is that I understand that we are in the forensic age where a lot of people are skeptical unless they see the DNA. A lot of people are skeptical unless you could forensically match the driplet of blood to a driplet that pertains to the person who was there. But unfortunately, as prosecutors will lay out when ultimately they hold someone accountable for this, not every crime is committed in the light of day where we have all of this wonderful information to present. And so it comes back to the issue of what do the circumstances show you beyond a reasonable doubt? And I think that's what they're going to have to rely upon in solving this very troubling and difficult case. 
Well, NBC in San Diego reports that 55 interviews have been conducted, 16 search warrants, including the homes, cars, cell phones, devices, records, of course, social media and and the cloud. Let's not forget the cloud. Now, police also said that they're aware this is very interesting of several of a video that that has recorded the sound of several bangs, if you will, on the night of Maya's believed disappearance. And this happened somewhere near the house. We can't say for sure it came from the house. So as a result of that, the police have gone in and as part of these search warrants, they've removed some rifles and some ammunition from the house. And this has been going on. It's almost I'm not going to say that it is harassment, but the police have kept the pressure up because they keep going back and doing yet another search and another search warrant. So no doubt that that has to really build the pressure on what's going on here. Now, as we said, um, he has the husband has been named a person of interest by the Chula Vista Police Department, and that happened in July. Now, the most recent set of information that's come out through documents is really fascinating. So Maya's parents, the children's grandparents have been denied access, they say, to the children. And I would say That is just one of those things that bothers me morally and ethically. If the mother is missing, the children need love and support from the entire family. And unless this couple, unless these grandparents are abusive and there's no reason to believe that, no allegations of that at all, why can't they see their grandchildren? My theory, Joey, is that these grandparents are going to try and talk to the children and daddy doesn't want that. Those kids know something. They may not know that they know something and they may be sheltered from the information of what's really going on and what the concerns are. So the best way to keep those kids insulated, I believe, Joey, is to keep these grandparents at bay. But I feel that that is like morally criminal, morally criminal. You know, more morality matters, uh, you know, and you're right when you say that, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, you have the human element and the component. and the other hand, you have the law. Right. So just backing this up before moving it forward, you had mentioned the person of interest. And a lot of times people hear person of interest. What does that mean? They hear suspect. What does that mean? They hear defendant. What does that mean? Just explaining that. So a defendant, obviously, is a person who has been accused officially and is stand accused in front of a court of law, and they're officially a defendant before the court. There's probable cause to believe that you committed a crime, you get arrested, you're a defendant. That's a defendant. What does a suspect mean? A suspect is a person who is suspected legally of committing the offense, but you just don't have that indicia of evidence to make them a defendant yet. And then there's the person of interest who we're interested in knowing more such that potentially you could become a suspect such that potentially you could become a defendant. So that's just to clear up that parlance for anyone who's listening. Now, as to getting back to the courts, and I think you're a very viable theory, you know, oftentimes children know more than we a think they know. B, that we would like them to know, and C, very intelligent and could release that information. And so I don't think that, I I mean, I think you're right. I don't think that that's such a bad theory to have, that perhaps Papa knows a little bit something and knows that the children know a little bit something and perhaps knows that subject to questioning and information that they might divulge things that start to put together this piece of the puzzle that becomes a lot clearer. 
on the legal issue of why the, the grandparents can't see him. It's an issue that we lawyers call standing, right? And the fact is, is that when you are the parent of a child, you obviously have standing to get custody. You can fight over custody. But in many jurisdictions, it's important to note that grandparents don't have the same standing as their daughter, right, which would be the mother uh, of the children. And so you can block that from happening. But here's the, here's the big deal. The big deal is, is that could change in an instant. What do I mean? If he now, because the police have pieced together sufficient and adequate information to turn him from a suspect, a person suspected of a crime, to a defendant, a person being accused of committing the crime, then I think that dynamic changes. And you could very well see the grandparents having the ability now to have access. And if they do get that access, you could see potentially more information coming forward. Last, last point, that's this. You know, we always have to be careful when it comes to children and getting information from children, right? There's a certain sensitivity there. And as mature as we like to think that children are, they're children. And so we have to be very careful for their own psychology, for their own well-being, for their own humanity, that we tread lightly. And we have child psychologists across this country that do a great job of eliciting information on it from children in a way that doesn't allow the children to feel violated or the children to feel they're being cross-examined or the children to feel they're being disloyal to dad or the children to believe that they're giving up information they really shouldn't. And I think we're gonna see that take place as, as this unfolds. Do you think it's possible that the judge could say, even though the grandparents don't have standing, that he or she may decide, you know what, I think it's in the best interest of these kids to have a relationship with their grandparents at this difficult time. Is there that kind of latitude in family court? You know, interestingly enough, that you hit the nail on the head when you say the best interest, because it involves family court involves the best interest of the child. And that's the analysis, right? From beginning to end, what is in the children's best interest? But before you can get jurisdiction, you have to have meaning before you can be physically before the court and have a legitimate argument, you have to have standing. And therefore, if you don't have standing or the ability to argue or trump the father's rights, then you got you have a problem. But again, I think that changes if or when the father becomes a defendant in a criminal case. Interesting. OK, well, on September 8th, this is the court statement that was um, the, the statement from the father by Larry that was introduced into court by his attorney. Now, Larry, the father, says that his own parents live with him. They're helping to take care of the kids. So they really don't need the in-laws. He claims that they're elderly, the the, you know, her parents. They he claims they're in poor health. Well, I mean, I don't see why that's any of his business, what their health is. And then he also claims that English is a bit of a problem. I mean, he's coming up with anything to keep these grandparents from the children. So here are some excerpts from the court documents in which the father has made the following statements. So this is I'm quoting directly. My wife, May, he calls her May instead of Maya, voluntarily left me and our three children on or about January 8th of 2021. Joey, how do you not know when your wife left? I mean, come on now. Uh, I there's a we're one sentence into this and already I, I have problems. I continue. We do not know her whereabouts. Her disappearance is considered suspicious or criminal. That's interesting that he would include that. Why would you do that? 
and then goes on to say the Chula Vista Police Department stated, I am not a suspect and there is no evidence of foul play. Well, I would say there's no evidence to this point. Remember that every investigation is ongoing. You had mentioned earlier on it with regard to the search warrants and everything else. And could it be a form of harassment or could it be that the police have information and they have a right to solve this, right? They have a right to continue to put together the pieces of the puzzle to move forward. They have a right to continue to go to the home to get out whatever they can. So it could be analyzed, it could be assessed, and it could otherwise be used to bring uh, this to justice. And so, you know, listen, these cases obviously are difficult cases. We get that, we understand that. But I think that you have to look when you're looking at the cases and you're looking at the, the mom being gone and potentially something untoward and horrific having happened to her. You have to also look at what's in, as you mentioned, the best interest of the children and what should we be doing to ensure their mental health, their mental viability, their future, their psych their psychological well-being, et cetera. And I think that that's going to be a critical part of this moving forward. But I think in that petition, final point, as they're, as he's making these statements in, in the petition, boy, life can change quickly. And I think pursuant to the search warrants that are executed, the tips that are being had, the authorities that are really joining forces in investigating these cases, I think it just takes one thing to crack it wide open. And his position as it relates to that, those children can change and change quickly. And uh, the grandparents may be in the driver's seat in days to come. I just want to read a few more of his quotes because otherwise, you know, we're very limited on what Larry has said. So I find this very intriguing. He goes on to say, May, my wife had expressed interest in leaving the family. She had been intoxicated more frequently, out drinking with friends and her relatives. She's been acting erratically, locking herself inside the bedroom, would not allow our children to see her at times. And she would often not join the children for breakfast, lunch and dinner goes on to say this. I consider her still alive because she had voluntarily left our house at least twice in 2020 without saying goodbye to me or our three children. Like, let's slap her around a little bit more while we're at it verbally. Right. And then here's the other thing that goes back to my theory. He also includes this about the grandparents, her her parents. This is another scheme in order to interrogate the children in reference to their mother's disappearance. May left our house and family and the petitioners, the in-laws, wrongfully put the blame on me. Therefore, they should be stopped from seeking visitation. He clearly states it right there. I don't want them questioning my children about their mother's disappearance. Yeah, he really does. And I think the point, uh, not only to that, but that he denigrates her in such a way, I think that's classic deflection, right? In the yeah. event that we don't want the arrows pointed at us, we talk about the mother's behavior and the mother voluntarily, quote unquote, leaving the mother not coming and joining us, the mother having left before, the mother being drunk, the mother, you know, uh, so everything's pointing outwards. But as they say, when you're pointing your finger at someone else, you have one pointed back to you. And so I think we have to look at that with a grain of salt. He's an interested party here. He's interested, obviously, in deflecting and blaming the universe, uh, everyone else but himself and in throwing the police off of his trail and onto anyone else's. 
Well, we've been following this case from the very beginning. We will continue to do so as there are updates. We will have her photo up. We will also link to phone numbers in the description boxes. So if you hear or see anything, we'll give you a place to get those tips out. It is now time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. Owen Michael, our producer, is joining us now. He's always mining social media for your comments and incredible cases. Hi, Owen. Hi, Anna. Hi, Joey. We've got, uh, you know, in California, we've been dealing with uh, wildfire for a couple of years, more than uh, more than a few years. Um, This summer has been particularly bad. We've got uh, a lot of wildfires burning in Northern California. We've got uh, an update to one of them. Right now, we've got a a hiker is accused of accidentally starting one of the major brush fires in Northern California last week. This is a 30 year old California woman was reportedly hiking to Canada and on her way, she ran out of water. She found a puddle of water near a dry creek bed, but she told authorities that the puddle had, uh, uh, forgive me, the puddle had bear urine in the puddle. So she said she tried to filter the water with a tea bag, but that didn't work. So she then allegedly started a fire to boil the water, uh, the fire so far has burned to almost 9,000 acres as a alleged result. She's pleaded not guilty to arson. Um, commenters had quite a bit to say about that. Tamika W. said, how did she know it was bear urine? Which I think we're all wondering. Yes, of course. How did we know? Unless there, unless she was squatting in the forest watching. Okay. Yeah. We don't know whether she witnessed the bear in this uh, circumstance, and we don't uh, know how much of an outdoors woman she was uh, or is. Uh, could be a factor. Tammy B says, and Smokey the Bear just laughed and laughed. <laughs> Laura L says, I will never understand camping. I'll stay home with my tap water. A lot of people agree with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kevin T, um, unbearable. Ooh. I'll show myself out now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Owen, we can always depend on you. You know, sometimes when I see these things on Twitter or something that you've posted, I'll be like, oh, my God, Owen, we have to do that. That's crazy. I like I had a feeling I didn't know what you were going to do for comments. But when I saw this on Twitter, I'm like, oh, this is perfect. You know, we have no shortage of uh, kind of wacky crime stories out there. Um, I don't want to encourage anybody to keep committing these wacky crimes, but uh, there's always going to be a place for you online. Mm -hmm. And we always love the ones where the people go berserk when they do not get their sauce for their McNuggets. All right, Owen. Thank you. Bye, guys. See you next week. Well, that is our episode for this week. Joey, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a blast having you. I love the way you explain everything. Anna, you're amazing. I think uh, this whole podcast, the way you structure it, the way you deliver it, uh, you deliver important information on stories that I think the world's talking about, certainly the country is talking about, and it's just such a, a needed service of what you do. So continue to do it, continue to do it well, and it's my honor to be here, and I so appreciate you inviting me to spend a few minutes with you this afternoon. So thank uh. you. Thank you. So, Joey, where can people find you on social media? I know you're on HLN and CNN all the time. So just type in Joey Jackson uh, and you'll get me and all types of variations of me. It's interestingly enough on it. Apparently is a football player who's like 70 something. And he's also his name is Joey Jackson or Joe Jackson. 
And, um, you know, when people ask me if I'm a football player, my first inclination is to be like, of course I am. Absolutely. <laughs> football. And then they tell me, wow, you look good for 70 something. I say, 70 something? What do you mean? They're like, it said, you. I'm like, oh, well, I'm not that guy. You can't have it both ways. Right. So no. I guess I, I should just be honest and say, I'm not the football player guy. I'm the other guy. But I'm the um, other Joey. <laughs> I'm the other Joey. But you can find me that way. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because there's no cr- there's no shortage of these crime stories out there. And it's important that uh, people know what they're all about and they get some assessment of what we think they're all about, too. And as we saw from Owen, people have their own opinions about what things are about as well. So thank you yes. so much. Great to be here. <laughs> sure- they sure do. And they they really uh, share their comments on YouTube, which I love. And I love to respond to as many as I can. You can always find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. You can find all our episodes of all our podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also see our podcasts and other videos on our YouTube channel. Subscribe to truecrimedaily.com so you can get our newsletter, with Owen, which Owen puts together. So until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, Don't do crime.